Our scripture this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 65, beginning at verse 17 through verse 25. You'll find it on page 607 in your black Bibles. But first, please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your words. They are light and life for us. We now pray that your Holy Spirit will inspire Pastor Mike as he preaches and all of us as we listen. We also pray that you will bless Pastor Jim and the elders as they offer communion and us as we partake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it, or the cry of distress. No more shall there be an infant that lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them, they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Jim and I are servants of the word. Jim is serving also as the passer out of manuscripts. So if you'd like to get a copy of it, please get Jim's attention as he goes by where you're sitting. Dear friends and co-heirs with Jesus Christ, it's hard to get a sense of it from these few verses that we heard this morning. But this beautiful passage actually originates with a problem. And what we heard is God's majestic answer to that problem. For the sake of the sound person, I'm going to turn on my, and all of you, turn on my wireless mic, sorry. Anyway, this is God's answer to something hard. So I want to explore 
three questions about this passage today. What exactly is the problem that Isaiah 65, this poem we just heard, is dealing with? Second, what is God's answer exactly to this problem? And what should our response be in the light of God's answer? I must be a Calvinist because I'm starting with the problem. Why talk about problems in a super positive passage like this? Well, for one thing, if you look at the promises in this passage, and if you look at all the wills and shalls, there must be at least 25 of them, and they're all promises. But you can get a sense of the miseries that God is promising to reverse. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard. No more any cry of distress. No children dying in their infancy. No people failing to reach a ripe old age. This passage, for all of its positive sense of direction, has a firm grasp on the fallenness and brokenness of the world. This earth, under these heavens, will always produce frustration and futility, sorrow and sighing. But this passage doesn't just argue those things up here in our heads on the level of abstract theology. This passage also has a gut level, an emotional force. It responds to deep needs and anxieties and frustrations in people's hearts, in people's souls, in people's lives, real lives. And I think we can get a better sense of that if we just zoom out a little bit to the larger context that this poem is part of. This passage doesn't come out of nowhere. It's part of a larger conversation, a dialogue between God and his people that is represented to us through the book of Isaiah. So if we back up just one chapter, and you're welcome to open your Bibles to it, or you can just listen along, but I'm going to back up to the beginning of Isaiah 64. We can hear God's people crying out to him from their darkness and despair. And you might remember this. This might sound familiar because Jim preached on this passage just last month. But let me make the connection. 64.1. Oh, that you would, this is people speaking to God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood, as the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. You can feel this, can't you? This isn't just up here. You can feel the frustration of people living in exile, squirming under the thumb of their enemies, banished from their homeland, scorned, suffering. Here's the end of chapter 64. And you know the chapter divisions are artificial, added hundreds of years later. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where your ancestors, where our ancestors praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. After all this, will you restrain yourself, O Lord? Will you keep silent and punish us so severely? You can feel the pain, can't you? You can taste the grief. You can sense the longing. 
And can't you also hear the implied question? Where are you, Lord? Where have you been? And here's God's answer. We're moving towards it now. Beginning at the, at the start of what we now call chapter 65. 65.1. I was ready to be sought out. God's speaking now. I was ready to be sought out by those who didn't even ask. And to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that did not call on my name. I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, people who provoke me to my face continually. If there's some frustration on the part of God's people when they call out to him, there's also frustration on God's part. And it's reflected in this answer. They've been saying, sure, where are you? Where have you been? The people have been asking. But I say, hold on. I've been here. I've been holding out my hands to you. You weren't even calling on me, but I've been right here calling to you, saying, here I am. Here I am. And you kept turning your back on me. And you know how these kinds of conversations can go. They can melt down into a stalemate and freeze into bitter silence. And we really need to understand. We need to feel the relational depth of this conversation between God and his people. The problem that God's answering isn't just the futility of the fallen world. This is not like a couple having trouble with their finances or their jobs or anything outside their relationship. This is like when a couple has trouble with each other. The relationship between God and his people is a source of frustration on both sides, with each side accusing and blaming the other. Where are you? Where have you been? What do you mean? I've been right here waiting for you. Where have you been? Both sides are pretty much ready to write each other off. What can break through this much ice? Well, God does that. God does that so graciously and so beautifully. First of all, God chooses to look for the best possibility in his people. Look at verse 8, or listen to verse 8 from 65. Here's what the Lord says. Thus says the Lord, as the wine is found in the cluster... And they say, do not destroy it, for there's a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I can still find some good here. I can save this. I can use this. I can make something beautiful out of this. God relents, and that's such an understatement. God turns away from his anger and disappointment and turns towards his people and asks them to turn with him in hope to these people that God's been saying, here I am, here I am to, he, he, he makes these beautiful promises of blessing. And now we've come to the beginning where we started this morning, back to verse 17 of Isaiah 65. I want you to hear it again, and I'm just going to play with the translation a little bit to reflect how the Hebrew actually says what it says, how it echoes something that was there earlier. This one little phrase, this one little word, hinani, here I am, comes up two more times. Here I am, about to create new heavens and a new earth. 
and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for here I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. You don't get the full sense of how much grace there is in this passage if you don't hear the echo of verse 1 in verses 17 and verses 18. The God who's already been presenting himself, offering himself to his people, here I am, here I am, is renewing the offer, deepening his blessing, blessing, sweetening the pot, saying it again in a new way, here I am, look, listen, creating a new heaven and a new earth. Here I am, creating Jerusalem, not as a desolation, but as a joy, and her people, not as a write-off, but as a delight. And to me, the loveliest moment in this whole lovely poem comes in the next verse, verse 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and I will delight in my people. Do you notice that subtle change between verse 18 and verse 19? In verse 18, God says, her people, Jerusalem's people. In verse 19, God says, my people. This is what I will do for the sake of my servants. That's verse 8. I will take delight in my people. Verse 19. God is affirming the relationship between himself and his people and promising to bring them along into the new heavens and the new earth he's about to create. All of the curses of this earth And these heavens will be banished there. No more weeping, no more distress, no more death, no more futility, no more building houses that other people live in, no more planting vineyards that other people eat from. And you may not realize it, but this is all covenant language. My people is covenant language. This is a covenant renewal passage. These promises represent the undoing of covenant curses. The people failed. They broke the covenant. In Deuteronomy 29, which is already a covenant renewal, God is so patient with his people. There's a long list of what will happen to the people if they break the covenant, if they forsake the Lord. One of those curses that will fall on them goes like this, Deuteronomy 28.30. You shall build a house, but not live in it. You shall plant a vineyard but you will not enjoy its fruit. That wasn't just a theoretical curse for the people God was talking to here at the moment he spoke through the prophet Isaiah. That was their actual experience. That was their lived reality. And to those people, in their low moment, God says, he says they, but he really means you. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree, deeply rooted and long living, shall be the days of my people. And my chosen, that's a word that's going to come up, I think, next week in the servant song from Isaiah 42. Here's my chosen one in whom I delight. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And to cap off this whole cornucopia of promises, we get one more beautiful healing answer to the people's complaints. So this people who were calling on God to tear open the heavens and come down, who were 
calling but hearing no answer, God now says this, verse 24, before they call, I will already be answering. While they are yet speaking, I'll already be there listening. I'm embellishing the translation just a little bit, but that's what it means. These are words of generous healing grace. And then in the very last section of this prophetic poem that we heard this morning, we see that the healing of this relationship between God and his people is part of a larger healing, the healing of the whole creation, sounding as a distinct echo of an earlier passage in Isaiah 11 with maybe a little bit of Genesis 3 sprinkled in. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food, shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's God's answer to the complaints and to the broken lives of his people, to the problems of a fallen world and of a broken covenant. How should we respond to that? How could we ever adequately respond to such a word of grace and power and love? Well, forget adequate. We're talking about grace here. God accepts what we can do. But we want to do something in response, right? I think the Bible gives us two metaphors that really help us in our response to the hope God gives us. Metaphors that actually reflect the promised reality, a reality that's greater than anything we can see or understand. One metaphor comes really right out of this passage and its setting, the the metaphor of exile. We live here in this world, but it's actually not our home and it's not our hope. We're aliens here. We're citizens of another place. One caveat, though. It doesn't mean we stop caring about this place. When God's people literally went into exile, historically went into exile in Babylon, God sent word through the prophet Jeremiah. This is found in Jeremiah 29 to tell them how they were supposed to live while in exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles I've sent from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses there and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And here's the part I really want you to hear. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As Christians, we can never write off the world we live in. We can never be faithless towards the world that God wants to save. All our doing has to be as much as possible for the good of the world. And in many, many ways in its welfare, we find our welfare. That's why we don't write off the world. We get on our knees and pray for the world, and we get out there and we work in the world. As exiles, fully here, faithfully here, working for its well-being, but also understanding that our true home is in that other place, in God's new creation. But that new creation reality should shape our labor in this current creation reality. 
How do we guard ourselves, though, from, from investing too deeply in this world, from loving it too much, from getting lost in our labor and in our own lives? Well, I think that points to the other metaphor and reality that I want to mention, Sabbath. We need and we're called to faithful labor in this world, but we're also called to rest. We need times to step away from the world's feverish self-absorption. We need to unplug. We need to create spaces and times where we can disengage from this world and set our hearts on a coming world. Places where we don't let this world follow us, where it doesn't invade our hearts and entangle us. We might even want to turn off our cell phones for a few minutes every week. Worship is certainly a place where that happens, but I would say that if you don't have some personal habit of unplugging on some regular basis, I don't care if it's every hour or every day or every week, but some, with some regularity, enough regularity for it to be a habit, if you don't have some habit of setting your heart fully on God, and on the new heavens, and the new earth, and the new you that God is even now creating, then your growth will be stunted, and you'll always be frustrated. I'm sure that even in Babylon, God's people, doing whatever they were doing for the welfare of that city, made the space and the time to set their hearts on Zion. I can't even imagine how many psalms were actually written in exile from Babylon, longing towards Jerusalem. But you can read some of them, and that's clearly how they read. How can your heart ever be fully engaged by this world? You're made for something better. You're made for a new heavens and a new earth. I think the monastic communities of the Middle Ages really understood this. And I'm not going to say we should all become monks, but we can learn something from them. One of the joys of my life in the last five or ten years has been reading a lot more monastic texts. I used to write them off. You know, the Middle Ages were the Dark Ages to me, but there was a lot of light there. They knew something about setting their hearts on a new creation. Peter Abelard wrote, I think, my favorite song from the Middle Ages called O Quanta Qualia. How many, quanta and how great, qualia, the quantity and the quality of those Sabbaths in the new creation. That's the first line of his song. But there's one stanza of that song that always speaks to my heart. It so deeply references both the notion of exile and the notion of Sabbath and the notion of creating this space, this interim in our lives where we set our hearts on God. In fact, the word is right in there. Nostrum est Interim, interim, mentem erigere. I won't read you the whole Latin, but I'll translate it, my own translation. Ours it is, meanwhile, to lift up our minds and with all our prayers to hunger for our homeland. Apetere, to have an appetite for that place. And to Jerusalem from Babylon after such a long exile to return. God has called us to a city whose builder and maker is him. That's our calling. That's our hope. That's our home. And this is the word of the Lord.